The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights at Stanford University. I'm Callie Ward. I'm in the final year of my PhD in Iberian and Latin American cultures here at Stanford. I wrote a dissertation on Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, amnesty laws, post-dictatorial human rights issues, and contemporary literature in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. And I'm Joe Wager, a third-year PhD student in Iberian and Latin American cultures at Stanford as well. I look at questions of law and humanities in Latin America, specifically in contemporary Colombia and Mexico. Today we have the pleasure of talking to Julia Neusner. Julia earned a Juris Doctor and a Master's Degree in International Policy from Stanford University before joining Human Rights First. As a Stanford Law School Public Interest Fellow in the New York office, Julia conducts research for policy initiatives and litigation to protect asylum seekers' rights. She founded the Refugee Rights Network at Stanford Law School and led monthly student trips to the U.S.-Mexico border to provide legal services to asylum seekers. She is also a researcher for the Stanford-based Immigration Policy Tracking Project and has conducted academic research around labor, migration, and international law. You are listening to The Rights Pod. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited for this conversation with you. We were wondering if to start, you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now. We know that you're working with Human Rights First, but we'd love to hear a kind of snapshot of a day in the life of Julia. Uh, Yeah, so I'm a legal fellow on the refugee protection team at Human Rights First. Um, The refugee protection team works on advocacy initiatives around the right to asylum. Uh, We actually published a big report today on Title 42, which is um, a Biden administration policy um, that essentially blocks the right to asylum at the southern border. So I've spent the past few months researching um, for that report, um, initially doing phone calls um, and interviews um, with with asylum seekers across the border remotely. And and I spent the past uh, three weeks in Tijuana doing in-person interviews. Before that, I was, uh, we put out another similar report and I've also worked on some litigation and uh, some direct representation services for um, asylum seekers that Human Rights First represents. Amazing, that's all such important work that you're doing and I'm sure we'll get more into the details as the conversation goes on. I just wanted to give listeners a brief overview of some of the things we'll be talking about today. But I should start by saying congratulations on this report that just came out today. Would you like to start by telling us more about what what that entails? Yeah, so um, we put out a report today. Um, It's called Failure to Protect. Uh, The Biden administration continues illegal Trump policy to block and expel asylum seekers to danger. Um, This is a a report my organization, Human Rights First, co-authored with Alotrolado, a legal services organization based in Tijuana, and Haitian Bridge Alliance, which is a California-based organization that advocates for Haitian and other Black migrants. My colleagues and I researched much of the report remotely from uh, from New York um, through WhatsApp conversations with asylum seekers across the border and um, and communications with service providers in detention centers um, and and at the border. And then I spent the past three weeks actually doing in-person interviews on the ground in Tijuana um, with, with folks from El Otro Lado and from um, Haitian Bridge Alliance. So the report details um, 
the impacts of this policy uh, since Biden took office. We have tracked 492 incidents of violence against asylum seekers impacted by Title 42 um, in Mexico just since Biden took office. And, and that's a massive undercount because most people um, impacted by this policy don't actually speak with researchers or, um, or advocates, uh, which is you know, how, how we got this information. So Mexico is extremely dangerous. The United States continues to expel at least 100 people a day to, um, to these Mexico border cities. And this is really unprecedented in US history, this sweeping, complete uh, ban to asylum at the southern border. Uh, and thousands of people have been returned to Mexico or even to the countries that they fled. People who enter the southern border um, are being put on flights and sent back to the countries they came from, especially Haitian asylum seekers. The United States, since Biden took office, um, has had at least, uh, has sent at least 27 flights um, expelling people back to Haiti, um, many of whom are asylum seekers. Uh, so the report goes into all of that in, in detail. You kind of mentioned that this is unprecedented. And I wonder if you could speak to, to the scale of the, how many expulsions are we talking about? How many people are stranded at the border? Um, and then of course it is unprecedented, but I wonder if you could talk about some kind of precursors in immigration policy in the United States with regard to the Southern border that maybe led up to or give some context for, or precisely show the unprecedented nature of this uh, Title 42 usage. So since March, um, the um, United States uh, government has expelled more than 637,000 um, migrants along the southern border under Title 42. And, uh, and you're right that there have been other policies before this. Many are familiar with MPP or the Remain in Mexico program, which to its credit, the Biden administration has ended and, um, and is working on bringing um, folks in that program to safety. That program is different because it only applied to um, it only applied to migrants from Spanish-speaking countries and Brazil um, who presented at the southern border, and at least under MPP, which is totally illegal and cruel, and um, you know is rightfully uh, terminated. Um, at least under MPP, people were entered into the asylum process. So. People would enter the southern border, they would be given an A number and an asylum case would be opened for them. And they would be given a notice to appear and, um, and a date to return and, and go to court. Uh, in contrast, under Title 42, it's almost as if you never entered. People, um, the, the, the uh, Border Patrol is taking people's biometrics and names. Um, however, they're not giving them, they're not opening any case for them. They're not starting the asylum process. Uh, many refer to this law as the invisible wall because people are just summarily kicked right out of the country. Um, like I said, most are just returned to Mexico where they had entered, but, but many have also been, um, been returned to the countries that they fled from initially by plane. I mean, that's just terrifying, right? I mean, under MPP, if there was registry, there was an A, an a number, an alien number. But with Title 42, they're taking people's biometrics and they're not telling anyone what they're doing with those biometrics, as far as I understand. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, they're not really telling anyone much of anything. 
I've, I, the, so I, I mentioned that, um, that I did some field research when, when we put this report out and I talked to, um, I talked to many people who had been, who had entered the United States and then had been expelled. And almost all of them told me that they didn't know they were being returned to Mexico until they were in Mexico. And in many cases, people were flown, people entered at one part of the border and then were flown across the country and expelled at another part of the border. They're not given any information about um, about why they're being expelled. Uh, people are, you know, trying to exercise their legal right to request asylum, and just border patrol agents are just telling them there's no asylum right now. You, which is a really absurd um, uh, position to be in um, for our country to just be telling people that there is no right to asylum um, and bringing them back to Mexico. You mentioned that um, there's this metering policy, the MPP or the Remain in Mexico, also the Migrant Protection Protocols, and then Title 42. So from what I understand, you've been to the border quite a few times. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you've seen on your different trips and how you've seen the impact on people's lives you know, on the ground with these different policies? So these policies trapping asylum seekers in Mexico date back to around 2016 um, when uh, the metering policy was introduced in response to an influx of Haitian asylum seekers at, um, at the San Isidro port of entry um, in Tijuana. The, uh, this, under this policy, the Department of Homeland Security seemingly arbitrarily determines um, a number each day of, uh, of asylum seekers that they'll accept. And the rest are every, everybody else who, who's hoping to seek asylum at the port of entry is left to wait their turn. Previously, uh, pri you know, prior to this policy, and you know, under U.S. domestic and under international refugee law, anybody who shows up at the United States ports of entry and asks a U.S. A US um, immigration officer for asylum would be taken into custody, and um, and their you know their uh, asylum claim would be adjudicated. Uh, under the meeting policy introduced in 2016, the uh, people would come to the port of entry, they'd be directed to um, Mexican government workers and often asylum seekers themselves who are managing these, um, these lists and, been and they'd be given a number and their name entered on a handwritten list and the number would uh, uh, correspond to their place in the queue. And they would have to wait weeks or months to um, come back to the port of entry and wait for their number to be called in their turn merely to present at the port of entry and ask for asylum. So that system was in place until, until the pandemic. Um, but then in a, on top of that system, uh, a couple of years later in uh, January of 2019, um, the Trump administration introduced uh, the Migrant Protection Protocols or MPP or uh, commonly known as the Remain in Mexico program. And under this program, uh, like, like I mentioned before, people from Spanish-speaking countries, uh, excluding Mexico and including Brazil, um, after, after they, you know, take their place in the metering queue, get their number, present at the port of entry, they begin um, the asylum process, uh, but then are returned back to Mexico to wait in these Mexico border cities for their claim to be adjudicated. So they, they get given a notice to appear and then they have to wait in Mexico for um, and returning to the border only to go to court. And then these tent courts popped up around um, along the border just uh, to hear these MPP claims. Um, 
vast majority of them uh, were denied asylum due to just the total injustice of the process. Many um, were removed in absentia because they uh, because they could not attend their hearings due to being kidnapped um, because these kidna uh, kidnappings along the border of those of, of migrants trapped there because of US po policies uh, are just so prevalent. So, so there was that policy. And then um, most recently is, is Title 42, which is this public health order that just closed the border completely to any asylum seekers, period, uh, at, the, at the southern border. Um, uh, since uh, the start of the pandemic in March 2020, and um, the the like like I, I mentioned, the metering system was cut off by uh, completely by the um, when the CDC orders went in effect. So VHS stopped accepting anybody. So no numbers were being called. Those who had numbers are just kind of still waiting for um, for uh, for the opportunity to, to present and. Um, and the Biden administration did end MPP and, and the, has begun uh, processing in many of uh, the people who um, who were in Mexico waiting for their court hearings with active MPP cases. Those who were moved in absentia that I mentioned before, um, they they still uh, don't have any relief and, and that's something that we're working on. Oh, so the other part of your question, uh, the, uh, referring to my, my previous trips to the border, I started going down to Tijuana to um, volunteer with the organization Al Otro Lado. Um, the first time I went was in 2016, um, before Trump was elected, uh, when, um, when they were providing services to people impacted by the metering system. Um, and, and that was my first year of law school. And then I, when there was a large influx of Central American migrants in early 2018, the organization put out calls for for assistance and, and I went back. And it was around that time that I started organizing trips for uh, Stanford student volunteers. And um, Joe and Callie were on my first big trip that, uh, that, we, that we organized to work with, uh, to volunteer with Alo Trilado. In around 2018, uh, before MPP, what uh, we were doing, um, and it was mostly law students um, that, that came on these trips, but also um, also a number of graduate students and a handful of undergrads from other programs. And uh, what we did on that first trip was um, were, uh, preparing people for credible fear interviews, which, which would be the first part of their asylum process when they actually um, are taken into U.S. custody and um, conducting Know Your Rights interviews. So we, we did that at El Trovado's downtown um, Tijuana office, which they would open their doors every day to, um, to asylum seekers in need of legal services. And when MPP went in effect, uh, we started sending student volunteers. El Trovado began doing um, MB Suddenly the needs shifted completely because before it was, um, you know, preparing people for what to expect when they go to the other side, preparing them for this credible fear interview, which is just the threshold process to enable them to stay, to, to be able to have their asylum claim heard. But people in MPP already have active cases. So that's at the point when, um, you know, if they had been in the U.S. And, um, prior to the policy, they would have presumably been able to um, speak with lawyers and, and, and get, get legal assistance from inside the country. So um, they are actually in a position where they have to be submitting their asylum applications. So Stanford volunteers uh, at these MPP clinics that Alotro Lada was running 
we're actually um, under attorney supervision, helping people with their um, with their applications for asylum, and helping translate their evidence and and get prepared to actually go before a judge uh, and and have their asylum cases heard. So those trips continued um, every uh, this uh, my my last school year, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty school year. Um, we were sending student groups every month until uh, until March 2020 when um, when Ella Trolado had to end their volunteer program due to the pandemic. So I hadn't been back since since January 2020 um, and it, and just it just went back for the first time last week. And um, and I have to say it's in terms of the total lack of it's just like the sheer number of people impacted and the lack of opportunity, you know, legal pathways um, to help them. It's never been worse in Tijuana. All we were able to tell people is you know, there's absolutely no way to request asylum at the southern border right now. And we have no idea when that's going to change. It's completely up to the executive branch of the U.S. government to rescind this order and and reprocess um, and, and restart asylum processing at the southern border, but it's just impossible to know when that will happen. And it was, it was just really difficult to have to tell people that. Right, that's so tough. I, we were both wondering, Joe and I, we talked a little bit before this conversation thinking about you know, things we could talk about. We were wondering if you could share any details, uh, stories of, of people that you talked to things that people told you they're experiencing or going through and what these conversations were like for you? Sure. Yeah. So I did, um, I, I was there for three weeks. I conducted um, more than 110 interviews with asylum seekers. Many were in this tent encampment I described uh, that's next to the port of entry. And this encampment has only been around since February. It's relatively new. And there's, it's a response to, um, to a lot of misinformation um, and, 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 you know, it's a response to Title 42, which is, which is close the border to folks, but also a lot of misinformation from um, CBP, like U.S. government, U.S. Uh, immigration workers themselves and, um, and others. So people I spoke to who, even people who had been victims of crimes at, at the border who were like really unsafe, felt very unsafe living in tents there, did not want to leave because they, they believed that, you know, the Biden administration would restart asylum processing at any minute and that if they stayed there next to the port of entry, they could be the first to enter. And, you know, the advocacy groups who, who I worked with, Alotrolado, Haitian Bridge Alliance, have been trying to give people accurate information and tell them that we don't know when asylum processing will be begin. And when it does, it's not likely that, you know, the people who are physically here next to the border are gonna be the first to, to be able to enter. But, um, but that uh, didn't matter to a lot of people who are just so desperate to, to be in the United States. Of course, and I can imagine when there's already such a low level of trust there, that complicates these conversations. Uh, yeah, so um, so while I was there, I spoke to um, asylum seekers from Haiti, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mexico, Russia, and Yemen. And there's there's people from other countries too. Those are just happen to be the ones that I spoke to um, all in just in the tent encampment. Um, 
and almost everybody is uh, is an asylum seeker and who and is fleeing persecution uh, in their countries of origin. In the in the camp, I I spoke with a Haitian asylum seeker who is uh, who um, was actually a, a radio host um, in in Haiti. He had a he was a journalist and and had a radio program. Um, and he he did a news broadcast that was critical of the government, and the government sent somebody to kill him, and it, which is a pretty strong asylum claim. Um, and he he had arrived at the tent encampment um, and was asking me, you know, how he can begin the U.S. asylum process. And and I just he's like, oh, how can I get a number to get in line, you know? And 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 I just said, there's there's absolutely nothing right now. You just have to wait indefinitely. I don't I don't know how long. I think. Um, some of the people in the most desperate situations in that tent encampment were um, were the Mexican asylum seekers because I mean they're they're trapped in their own country um, and many of them from states further south where um, where there's a large organized crime presence had had experienced really gruesome atrocities um many had you know were mourning the the deaths of their um immediate family members um who had who had been you know had had been killed in in really uh in really gruesome ways right in front of them um people had been threatened with death some of the people i spoke with i actually actually spoke with me through their tents um because they were so afraid of, of even coming outside because they said the same organi organized criminal groups that targeted them in their home countries um, we're here in Tijuana. The the fact that they're just trapped in the, in their own country in danger um, and and so exposed in in this encampment is was really disturbing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of something else that we've been noticing. You've talked about people from Haiti a few times, and unfortunately, people from Haiti aren't covered as often in the media. It would seem as as people coming from Central America, for example. And I'm wondering if you think that a contributing factor or one of the reasons why this might be happening could be due to this fear that people have and a lack of trust. You know, they don't want to talk to reporters and so therefore it isn't covered as much. Yeah, I think that's right. That Haitian um, Haitian asylum seekers and and African asylum seekers are underrepresented in media coverage of what's been happening at the border. And Black asylum seekers, uh, Title Forty Two has had has disproportionately harmed Black asylum seekers stuck in these border cities just because of the racism they and discrimination they experience. And also, um, when I, I mentioned that MPP processing had restarted, of course, none of them had ever been in MPP, so they. Um, they were excluded from from that relief by the Biden administration, and and I was uh, I was fortunate that um, Haitian Bridge Alliance is a co-author on the report we just put out, and um, lawyers and researchers from that organization were in Tijuana with me um, my first week, and they uh, and I spent that first week visiting shelters um, and and the encampment with with them, and they enabled me to interview Haitian asylum seekers uh, in Haitian Creole. I, I spoke to many who reported being um, victims of crimes in Mexico. Um, uh, many I spoke to had been robbed by police, um, extorted by police, extorted by Mexican immigration. Um, 
They uh, have been exploited by employers and have had to do, um, have had to work really long hours, often in factories uh, for very little pay. And many told me that they, um, that, that uh, people made racist remarks to them in the street uh, and, and even ex- experienced racism in the encampment uh, when they were in line for food provisions or, um, or other donated items that they heard remarks from other Central American asylum seekers um, and or for the, from the folks giving out donations, which was uh, really concerning to hear. And I, as I mentioned earlier, the US government is expelling massive numbers of Haitian asylum seekers and migrants to directly to Haiti on these flights. Haitian asylum seekers who have entered the United States seeking protection um, have then been put on planes um, and, and flown back to Haiti since February, 2021, over 1400 people have been, um, Haitian uh, migrants have been expelled in that manner. And I actually spoke to a few who were expelled under Title 42 and then made their way back up to the border because they're not safe in, in, their, in, in Haiti. Uh, one man I spoke to, uh, the government agents in Haiti had tried to kill him. He, um, they shot him and he escaped um, with his wife and young son. They um, entered the United States and then were expelled back to Haiti. And then as soon as he got back, um, he heard that, 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 that people were looking for him to kill him. So his wife and son went into hiding because they just didn't have any money left and he, he had to flee alone. So he was, he was alone waiting um, in Tijuana for, for asylum processing to resume. And, and I, I spoke to a couple of others who had similar experiences. Well, we certainly appreciate you and these other organizations that you've been mentioning, you've been working with, covering these important and often underreported issues. Yeah, it makes me think there's a, a Chilean writer, Roberto Bolaño, had this idea of the secret of the world being found on the U.S.-Mexico border in his fictionized mm-hmm. version of Ciudad Juarez. And then some other scholars of, of Haiti, um, you know, they had this idea that to tell the history of the Caribbean to tell the history of the world. And it seems like there's this kind of conjugation of those two claims kind of really coming together in, in what you're telling us about the border and the kind of systemic racism, anti-Blackness that's built into the immigration system. And then you have this kind of complete normalization of, of violence, right? Where just someone threatening to kill you, that's not enough. That's just, you know, el pan de cada día, as they say in Spanish, right? It's just the bread you eat every day. It's just completely normalized. Um, so, you know, it's just horrifying. Thank you for, for telling us about this. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us where you see things going in the future, what kind of things are, are is Biden putting into place? Or do you see possible changes or positive steps coming from this with the new administration? I certainly hope so. Um, I mean, we, I think many of us who, who have been working on immigration Advocacy have been really, really disappointed with um with the lack of progress, uh, especially around the border. Um, the uh, the administration has not um has not expressed any intention to get rid of Title Forty Two anytime soon. Um, that they have been quite uh, explicit in discouraging people from coming to the border. Um, so I. I'm really not sure. Like I was telling the asylum seekers who asked me when they would be able to enter, I don't know. And and uh, all we can do is just put pressure on the administration um, 
try to lift up uh, the voices of the people who are um, who are impacted by these policies and um, and tell their stories and and hope that uh, that the Biden administration will do the right thing. So, Julia, you mentioned earlier a litany of problematic and human rights violations and people's information is being taken, being denied asylum, among others. Um, but you mentioned something else that's a little cryptic, which is people being flown from one city to another in order to be expelled. Did I understand that right? Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, so um, so a few months ago, the state of Tamaulipas, which borders um, Texas, uh, stopped the Mexican government in that state stopped accepting families with young children expelled um, expelled by the US government. So. That's the one of the most dangerous, I, I think the most dangerous state uh, along the border in Mexico. Um, many, many, many kidnappings um, and uh, organized criminal groups operating there. So um, they were no longer accepting um, families returned under Title 42. So for a while, I believe the go US government was actually processing the claims of these families who would enter, um, who they couldn't return. But now um, has been flying these families um, in massive numbers to other parts of the border to expel them in other parts of, um, into other states in Mexico. And everyone I spoke to had the same story um, of, of mistreatment by um, United States Border Patrol ag agents. All of them were kept in a freezing cold holding cell that um, Spanish speakers referred to as the Ilera, kept there for a few days and border patrol officers took all of their clothing for them except for the one layer they had on the bottom. I, I really think this is like a deliberate form of torture. Um, put them in this cell for a few days. 100% um, of the people I spoke to said their children got sick. Many said the adults also got sick in this room. Um, and then they, uh, all of them told me that they were, um, that they were then put on a bus and then a plane um, and, then, and then expelled to San Diego and that the entire time, Border Patrol agents either ignored their questions, refused to answer them, or straight or just outright lied to them and told them that we're taking you to another part of the United States. Or, we're you know, when they said, where are you bringing us? Well, we're taking you to um, your family members. They would actually ask people for the addresses and numbers of their family members and make them believe that they were being taken to, um, to their family members in the United States. Many like did it. Many didn't. None of them knew that they were being expelled to Mexico until they were actually in Mexico. They said that, that they, you know, they were just being told lies or no information about where they were going. Then saw the Mexican flag on the border, and and that's when they knew. Others didn't know until they arrived at the shelter, um, and the shelter director had to tell them. Um, he uh, he says he does this orientation for these busfuls of people who who arrive from Texas every day. So they were getting 50 to 100 people a day arriving, um, arriving from Texas, where he, where he asked them, do you know what country you're in? Do you know what city you're in? Because people believe they're still in California. And, and all of them told me that uh, CBP agents uh, took all of their belongings and threw them in the trash and didn't return them. Everything, their backpacks. Uh, the only things that they returned were people's cell phones and their documents and the clothes on their backs. So there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of disoriented people um, who, uh, we, without any resources, what little they had was thrown away. Um, again, I, I think this is probably the twisted way of the government trying to deter migration. I don't know why else they would do this to people, throw their belongings away, like medica medications for their children, 
everything they had brought with them, photographs. Uh, and then the shelter receiving this many people, um, they, they said many would leave. Um, those who could go home would go home, but people, you know, a lot of them are asylum seekers fleeing persecution and they, they can't, so they just stay. And I don't know the scale to which this is happening. This is just a, a couple of shelters that I went to reported that they were receiving, um, receiving people, but this one shelter was receiving them in massive numbers. And I did hear about this happening in, along other parts of the border um, in Arizona as well. So really cruel and very concerning practice um, by the Biden administration. Okay, wow. I had some wrapping up questions to ask you, but first I just wanted to respond to this story that you've just shared with us. Do you think that there will be any reporting on this or any kind of follow-up where we could hear more about it later? Yeah, actually, um, I, I spoke to, um, to a number of reporters uh, about this, um, about these expulsions. Um, San Diego Tribune did a great story on that shelter um, that, that I was describing. Um, and uh, KPDS was there um, and, and did a story on it. And I think uh, the LA Times uh, is, is, gonna, is going to be covering it. So hopefully, um, hopefully they, they'll shine some more light on this really, really awful uh, practice. Well, thank you so much for shedding light on all of these important issues. When I think about creating a podcast episode like this one um, or what other episodes or sources of media attempt to do. I think about, you know, there's just so much to cover and we could easily talk to you for many more hours with so many more questions. Um, we've really enjoyed just grilling you on everything that you know and have experienced, but I have a quick kind of bullet list and, you know, both of you feel free to to, to please jump in and add if, if there's something important you think I'm missing. But some of these elements that I think are the most important to be covered and that you have covered. So number one, amplify voices and stories of the people who are the ones going through this hell. Also to point to the role of the US government historically in creating this crisis. I think that's something else that you know, we're all familiar with in the work that we do, but that is maybe overlooked in media representation of this crisis. And also, you know, like you pointed to the Biden administration, what, are, what is the work that needs to be done? And how is any presidential administration continuing to implement these policies that violate human rights? And finally, and this is something that I saw elaborated on in this other podcast episode that you recommended to me. I did my homework. It's a This American Life episode. It's their Pulitzer winning episode. So, you know, almost as good as the episode that we're recording here today. They talk a lot about people at the border who perpetuate human rights abuses, such as organized criminal groups, as well as CBP and other officials. So there are so many characters in this story and like I said so many more questions that we could ask you but I just wanted to wrap up by you know first of all inviting either of you to jump in if there's anything I haven't covered uh, and second of all a kind of two-part question about some other characters in this story people like the three of us people out there who are listening 
what is our role or what are our tasks? What is our homework um, in terms of assigned reading? What should we be reading? But also in terms of any concrete steps or actions that we could take? Yeah, um, in terms of reading, there's one book that I think that came out last year. It's called The Dispossessed by John Washington. And I think um, it, it provides a really good overview of, of like you said, the, 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 his, the history of the United States and actually creating these crises in other Central American countries and also just the right to asylum and, um, and how it's been constrained here in the United States in, in recent years. And this came out before all this Title 42 um, stuff. So there, the, the Intercept has had some really excellent reporting on Title 42 um, and has actually um, exposed some of, uh, some of the uh, expulsion practices and really problematic expulsion practices in in less uh, in in less trafficked parts of the border and really um, remote areas in Arizona, for example. Um, so I recommend looking into some of the, some of their recent stories uh, by Ryan Devereaux. Um, oh, I just saw that today. I saw that you <laughs> retweeted it, and I want to retweet it myself, but I'm trying to do the responsible thing and actually read articles before I retweet them. So I'll give you I that. have a bookmark to read later. I know Twitter shames you now with that little warning. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, he, he's done some really good reporting. Um, this is our second report, Human Rights First, that we put out um, in the past year. So, um, so we do try to try to cover these things in detail um, in our reports on our website. So little plug, plug for the Human Rights First website. Um, and in terms of what can be done, um, I know that at Lodzrolado, um, where many, I think close to 100 Stanford students have, have had um, experience volunteering for Lodzrolado in some capacity, whether it's in person, doing remote intakes, or doing um, remote translation. They um, really uh, incredible organization um, based in Tijuana with uh, that has this um, infrastructure for providing opportunities for remote volunteers. I know that they are actively recruiting um, Spanish-speaking volunteers who can do um, remote intakes. So anybody who's who's able to do that and and wants to get plugged in, um, should I uh, urge you to uh, to go to the, their website um, and look into those opportunities. And yeah, I mean just. Uh, you know, use your channels to uh, to spread these stories and, um, and and try to put pressure on this government to make a change. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for sharing your time and your expertise and your now discovered investigative abilities. We look forward to to hearing more from you in the future. We hope to continue the conversation and we hope all of our, our listeners do as well. We'll make sure to put all the links to Human Rights First as well in the show notes, so please check that out. To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod.